Good morning. Didn't you enjoy the worship music this morning? It was wonderful. Well, for those of you, again, in person or if you joined us online, it is great to be with you this morning. My name is John Gilner, and I serve as one of our executive pastors. And as Pastor Tyler mentioned, or if you've been keeping track, uh, today is Pastor Rob's final day of his sabbatical. Um, and I know he is anxious and ready to get back, uh, to get back in the office this week and to preach, to preach next Sunday. But for today, you're su- stuck with the substitute teacher for one, one more Sunday. Last week, Pastor Tyler kicked off our Lenten sermon series called 24. And the series is going to take us through the final 24 hours of Jesus' life. And as you'll recall, we began the series at the table with the Last Supper. Pastor Tyler reminded us that this meal was unlike every other Passover the disciples had ever celebrated. Jesus narrated the Passover meal with himself at the center. Deliverance, redemption, salvation, all of this was now found in Jesus. And around that table that that Jesus gathered was an unlikely group of disciples who would soon betray him, deny him, abandon him. And yet his grace was poured out on all of them. Uh, This week, our scene is very different from last week's. Our text for today is Matthew 26, verses 36 through 46. And we'll read that in just a few moments. Several years ago, when when, uh, Monica and I were living in Kansas City, and I was attending seminary, I worked at a hospital nearby the seminary. Uh, The hospital was called the Research Medical Center, and it's a major trauma center in that part of town. In school, I was working toward a certificate in chaplaincy, and so I had to put in hours at the hospital for what's called clinical pastoral education. That job was unlike anyone I've I've ever had. I'm a guy who likes routine. I like having sort of a quiet time at night with with the lights off, watching TV to kind of segue into sleep. I I need that transition period. But this job had no such routine and had no sense of normalcy. When you got a page, you never knew what kind of situation you were going to walk into. For those who don't know, this is maybe better for the second service when our students are in here, but a page is something you would get on a little thing called a pager that would give you a phone number or a code or something to respond to. Kind of like the, those things that you get at restaurants that let you know that your table is ready. Anyway, you never knew what was going to be on the other side of that page. It was nerve-wracking, and, and it was kind of thrilling at the same time. I remember walking through those fluorescent-lit corridors in the middle of the night, praying and asking God to help me with whatever I was about to face on the other side of that page. There was one night that stands out. The hospital was set up with the medical ICU and the surgical ICU next to each other. I think there there may have been a sliding door or a curtain or something that separated those two units. On the medical side that night, I spent a considerable amount of time with a family whose elderly father was, was dying. And the scene was calm. They knew it was coming. There seemed to be a peace among them all. In that hospital room on that night, In fact, I I baptized that man. I had no idea really what I was doing or if I was even supposed to be doing this, but we baptized him. We sang. We we prayed. There was a deliberate nature to everything that we did in that room. This man was moving toward death, and yet there was a peace that fell into that space. Later in the evening, I I went through that, that sliding door and into the surgical ICU, what I encountered was completely different. A man in his late teens, maybe early 20s, was brought in with multiple gunshot wounds. The scene was hectic, 
Doctors and nurses were scrambling. Family and friends were crowded all around and filled that space. There was so much noise, I remember. There was crying and wailing and just profound grief. This man's life was leaving him, and there was just complete unrest in that room. I'll never forget that night, the difference between those two rooms. On one side was a calm, peaceful embrace of what was coming, and through the door on the other side was nothing but heartache and grief. The change going from one scene to the next felt like whiplash. And that sort of whiplash is what we feel when we read the text for today. Last week at the table, we saw Jesus as the host of the meal. He knew what was to come. He knew the one who would betray him. He knew that death was coming soon. And then we read our text for today, found in Matthew chapter 26, verses 36 through 46. This is what Matthew says. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little farther, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping, because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. Do you feel the shift in Jesus' demeanor? Just, just a few hours earlier, he seemed fully in control, purposeful, direct. Now we see a Jesus who can't get it together, a Jesus who is overwhelmed, a Jesus who is frustrated with his friends. What do you do with that kind of change in Jesus? How do you account for that that sudden shift? Does it bother you at all that Jesus can feel overwhelmed? If it does, you wouldn't be the first. If Jesus is fully God, I mean, how could Jesus get overwhelmed to the point of death? How is it that he could need the company of his friends? Is this really how it happened, or did Jesus just kind of make it seem like he was having a difficult time? We don't like to think of Jesus like this. Needy, overwhelmed, vulnerable. It's bothered people throughout the ages. In fact, there's a word to name this. The word is docetism. It's not just a word. It's actually it's come to be known as a heresy. Docetism is a Greek word that means to seem. Docetists arose in the first few centuries after Jesus died. And they claimed that Jesus' humanity and suffering seemed real, but weren't actually real. Jesus didn't have a real body. What, what others saw was just an apparition. Jesus, the incarnation of God, couldn't actually suffer and be human. That's not how God's work, they said. I mean, we want, we want our God to be strong, undeterred, the sort of strong, silent type. We don't want a God swayed by emotion or taken down by the stuff of life. In fact, not long ago, I heard a politician say that the 
turn the other te- turn the other cheek teachings of Jesus have gotten us nowhere. A vulnerable God doesn't get us what we want, it seems. But here's the problem. To see Jesus is to see God. I've heard a pastor say God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. The theory of docetism was struck down by the early church. They repeatedly affirmed that Jesus was fully God and fully human. Jesus just didn't just appear to be human. He was fully human. But now the Jesus that everyone could go to in a time of trial, the Jesus that healed others, the Jesus that liberated others from their sin, the Jesus who calmed the raging sea, this Jesus was overwhelmed with what was before him. The common English translation of verses 37 and 38 say, When he took Peter and Zebedee's two sons, he began to feel sad and anxious. Then he said to them, I'm very sad. It's as if I'm dying. Stay here and keep alert with me. I was talking to a friend uh, this last week or so, and we were talking about this passage, and he said, I don't know if it's just where I'm at in life, but I could get weepy talking about this. Jesus, sad and anxious. Anyone feel sad and anxious these days? What is it that has brought you to this garden of prayer? Are you sad and anxious about the state of our world? The unrest in Ukraine, the ongoing tension in the Middle East, the instability in Venezuela. There's actually a website at the Council of Foreign Relations, and they have a global conflict tracker where you can see points on, on the global map where there are ongoing issues, you know, just in case you want to increase your sadness and anxiety. Maybe you're sad and anxious about things within our own country, maybe within your own home. Maybe life has brought you to a place you never expected, a career that seems like a dead end, a prognosis you can't escape, but here you are feeling overwhelmed and it seems like life is being pressed out of you. Maybe you're sad and anxious about your relationship with God. Or maybe lack of relationship with God. You feel alone. You thought it was going to be different. You thought it was going to be something that turned out not to be. Maybe God didn't show up for for you when you needed or how you needed. You prayed. You prayed some more. And then you prayed even more. But yet, where was God's deliverance? The scripture tells us that you have company in your sadness and anxiety. Jesus didn't just seem like he was sad and anxious. He was sad and anxious. He was overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. In the midst of your own sadness and anxiety, you have Jesus next to you. You have a Savior who is not immune from the same pain and heartache that you've experienced. Just this past week, I was at the bedside of my friend, Jean Clarkson, who passed away on Monday night. Her daughter, Mary, she told me that Jean's favorite hymn was Just a Closer Walk with Thee. I love that hymn. I sing that to Jonathan several times uh, throughout the week as I'm putting him to bed. And I love that that middle verse. Through this world of toil and snares, if I falter, Lord, who cares? Who with me my burden shares? None but thee, dear Lord, none but thee. So the question is, what does Jesus do in his sadness and anxiety? What does he do with this? The first thing that Jesus does is what we all want to do. He gathers those who are closest to him. 
First, there's that, that group of larger, the larger group of disciples. Then from that group, he pulls out his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. But did you notice that, that Matthew doesn't refer to them as James and John? He calls them the sons of Zebedee. The last time that reference was used was, was in Matthew chapter 20, when the mother of James and John asked if her boys, her precious boys, if they could have prominent seats in the kingdom. And in response to her request, Jesus tells her that the kingdom is not one that most would choose. The, the boys aren't going to become the secretary of defense and the secretary of state. His kingdom, that cup he has to drink, will lead him to the point of sadness and anxiety. And so maybe that's why he draws Peter and the sons of Zebedee into greater intimacy, so that they may fully see and understand the nature of his kingdom. But in his anguish, Jesus pulls in those closest to him. Have you ever done that? Have you ever gone through some things that you couldn't get through on your own, and so you've pulled in friends, Sunday school class, small group, and said, stay here with me. I need you. Certainly, if Jesus needed the support of others, we are going to need that too. And we need to realize that there are people all around us who need this kind of love and support. N.T. Wright, a theologian, says, Once we ourselves get over the shock of realizing that all our friends, neighbors, and family, and even the people we have come to rely on are themselves vulnerable and need our support, if even Jesus longed for his friends' support, how much more should we? We should be prepared to give it to the fullest of our ability. The difficult reality of this text and in our lives is that our friends don't always get it right. The disciples fell asleep. They didn't fully understand what Jesus was about to go through at any moment. Sometimes our friends can even be like the friends of Job, who tried to find some reason why Job was to blame and for all that had happened to him. Yet even though those closest to Jesus get, didn't get it right, we can learn from this. We, we can learn to wait with those who are hurting. We can keep watch with them to stay alert, to help them get through their situation. We don't have to offer reasons or explanations like Job's friends. We can enter the garden of prayer with our friends, allowing our presence to speak for us. I remember when we were in Maryland for Jonathan's birth. After four years of trying to get pregnant with no success, we entered the process of adoption. About nine months into that process, we were selected by a young woman from Maryland to adopt her baby. She had gone to the abortion clinic, and after about two hours of sitting there, decided not to, got, not to go through with it, and she got on a bus and went home. And on the bus ride home, she Googled adoption agencies and found ours. She went through the process to select a family and eventually chose us. So there we were in, in Maryland for his birth. We were in the hospital and we got to meet that fuzzy little guy just minutes after he was born. We were so anxious about it all. We were in a place we didn't know. We had just driven 1,100 miles to get there on time. We didn't know our surroundings and we were entrusting our family's future to this scared girl. Jonathan went home from the hospital with us. Home for us during those few weeks was at the uh, Mid-Atlantic Nazarene District office. Those, those were good days of getting to know Jonathan, getting to understand his cries. And man, that little dude could cry. We, we took the train one day up to the Inner Harbor in, in Baltimore and we went to the National Aquarium. We just had a good day together. On the train ride home, 
we got a call, and it was the call that we had been fearing. Jonathan's birth mom was reconsidering and placing him for adoption. It was all up in the air now. All that time of hoping and waiting and thinking about our future, all of it was in question. And we got to the house and we were devastated. I remember standing there in that kitchen, standing around and sobbing. I remember Monica on her knees, just kind of in a pile on the kitchen floor. And there was a district, there was a district employee there, his name is Terry. And Terry got to know us during our three or four weeks there in that house. He knew our situation, but he didn't know the details of what had just happened on that train ride home. But he came in and he sat with us. Didn't say anything for quite a while. He put his hand, eventually put his hand on my shoulder and offered a short prayer to God on our behalf. He recognized that things weren't right for us. He sat with us. Later that night, maybe it was the next day, things were still unsettled. Monica called her friend Michelle in Kansas City. They were in a small group with us and told her what was going on and just said, can you pray for us? Later on, Michelle told Monica how uncomfortable it was for her to pray out loud. But on that night, on that phone call, Michelle gave Monica a gift of presence and prayer on her behalf. Michelle and other friends from our church began to pray for us. In the words of Jesus, they stayed with us and kept watch with us. A cool part of that story is that years later, when Michelle's father passed away, when he died here in Michigan, Monica showed up for the funeral. Michelle had no idea that Monica was coming, but Monica showed up. And Michelle was so surprised to look up and see Monica there in her time of need. In Michelle's time of sadness and anxiety, Monica gave herself her presence. It's a beautiful thing when presence is given and when we ourselves receive, receive the presence of others. Sometimes we give and sometimes we receive. Well, there's something else that, that Jesus does in his sadness and anxiety, and he prays. Three times he prays. He prays in what I call an exit prayer. He hopes that there might be a way out, that there might be another way for God to accomplish this task. But attached to that exit prayer, though, is a prayer of submission. A prayer where Jesus yields himself to the Father. He says, yet not as I will, but as you will. If you've prayed exit prayers, you know getting to that yet is not easy to do. Everything within us longs to be free of of entanglement, free of anything that would hold us back or oppress us or keep us down. Have you prayed any exit prayers? Lord, help me. Get me out of this. Get me out of this job. Take away this cancer. Lord, free me from these headaches. Lord, I've messed up. You have got to get me out of this mess. Here we have Jesus praying an exit prayer. But it's the beginning of his prayer. It's not the end. We, we just spent five weeks working our way through the Lord's Prayer. We talked about how prayer isn't about getting God what we think God should do. But it's about being formed. And Jesus' prayer begins one way, but it ends revealing Jesus' formation. Through years of living, years of spending time in prayer, years of saying yes to the Father, Jesus once again yields his will to that of the Father. The exit prayer is turned into a prayer of, yet even in the midst of what I'm going through, may your will be done. May your kingdom come even now in the midst of all this. May your name be known. 
Have you ever gotten to the place where you stopped looking for a way out and instead began to look for a way for God to come in? Into the hurt, into the pain, into the anxiety. How might God work in the middle of this mess? How might God's love and grace be made more fully known in the midst of your vulnerability? God isn't looking for perfect people to work through. God's perfection can and is known, is made known in our weaknesses. This is the beauty of yielding ourselves, our wills, our desires to the God who created out of nothing. When Pastor Rob sketched out this sermon series, he had the text ending for today with verse 44, when Jesus prayed for that third time. I guess he's going to learn soon that I decided not to stop there. Because this scene in the garden doesn't end there. Verses 45 and 46 say, Then he returned to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. There's the turn at the, at the, at the end of the story in the garden. The matter seems to be settled within Jesus. Now, I, I don't think everything that he was feeling, the sadness and anxiety and being overwhelmed, I don't think all of that just disappeared. I don't think he put on a happy face and pretended like he was okay. When others asked how he was doing, I don't think he just faked it and said, fine. The difficult path he was taking was still before him, but the story doesn't end in the garden. The story doesn't end in the garden. Does anybody here need to, to hear that today? The garden of sadness and anxiety, just, Jesus doesn't stay there forever. The sadness and pain don't have the last word. This is the hope of the gospel, that sin doesn't have the last word. That suffering doesn't have the last word. That the greed and violence of those in places of power in our world don't get the final say. The hope of the gospel is that God, that grace, that life will have the last word. Jesus tells the disciples, rise. And the word that Matthew uses here is the same word that's used when talking about Jesus rising again. The implication being is that the pain in the garden isn't final. New life is breaking in. Even when everything isn't settled, even when things, difficult things are still ahead, we can still entrust ourselves to the one who will give Jesus new life, whose breath will penetrate the stone of that tomb on Easter morning and bring Jesus back from the dead. I keep thinking about that night in the intensive care unit at Research Medical Center. Even though the family on the one side was saying goodbye to their loved one, there was an order and a peace about that situation. I felt in control, you know, mostly. <laughs> then as the night wore on and the page went off and I crossed over to the other side of the ICU, everything was different. It was chaotic. I was no longer in control. Anything that had worked before wasn't working now. My expectations for how things would go that night and in that situation was just kind of blown to pieces. Where there had been peace, that had been replaced with anguish. A weightiness, a heaviness had set in. I don't know what it is that you've carried with you here today. Maybe you're like Jesus. Sad and anxious. Life is being pressed out of you. You just need to acknowledge that before the Lord today. Or maybe you're like disciples who don't always get it right. We don't always get it right when others need us 
I know I have failed in that and not shown up for others when I needed to. Maybe you sense that there are some around you, someone in your life that could stand to have someone just sit with them, to offer them faithful presence. Whatever it is, as Pastor Joel comes and leads a song of response, I invite you to come to the altar to pray, to spend time in this, in this garden of prayer, to take that next step, to entrust yourself to the one who can give new life. So as they play, I invite you to come to pray and to spend some time before the Lord.